Well, this is exciting. Uh, we're going to talk about the porn problem, uh, which, you know, is fun. Um, uh, well, yeah, anyway, so good already. Great start. Um, but uh, I want to encourage us today that uh, what we're going to talk about is some stuff we don't normally talk about in church. And this is not about you've got a porn problem. This is not about you might, and that's okay if you do. We'll talk about that in a second. But what I want to talk about is the the porn epidemic that we have right now in our nation and in our world, but then also the actual issue with porn. What's what's the actual problem that we're facing with pornography? Because I think and believe really with all my heart that it's the thing that's going to destroy the church moving forward if we don't get this under control. So before we start, I I want you to uh, pull out some notes because it's super, super content heavy. It's very content dense. And uh, we don't have any slides for the session. So if you want, uh, if you want a copy of my really all over the place notes, um, I'll give you my email address at the end. You can email me and I'll send them to you. Um, but I'll, I encourage you to write down things as, as they come uh, to mind or things that uh, pop up that you're like, man, actually, that, I need to write that down just so that you can stick with that. In fact, first, I want you to write down three questions because uh, I'm going to get you to just do a bit of a reflection time first before we get started. Um, question number one. My personal perspective on, on pornography is dot, dot, dot. The second question, how I feel about pornography is dot, dot, dot. And then I think, un, like, underscore, percentage of people engage with porn. So what do you think the percentage of people is that engage with pornography right now? Have, have a few seconds just to answer those questions. Because this is going to help us frame your current perspective. Okay. So, hold that in your mind as we go through the rest of our session today. I'm going to quickly pray and then we're going to get into the content. Father, I just want to thank you for this uh, room of people today that are here to advance their lives. And hopefully, Lord, the lives of so many others. I pray today, God, that it wouldn't be too awkward as we talk about this topic. And Father, we would come alive in your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2018, Tamana, and I'm going to butcher this because I, I haven't learned today very well, uh, Tamana Fa'akatu, fa, oh, how do you say that? Yeah, that one, um, did a study on pornography use in children and in teens in New Zealand. So this is in 2018. The study that was done showed that a quarter of New Zealand has engaged with pornography. So, un, uh, so, so with the children and teens, a quarter of them have engaged with pornography. And you might think that's quite low, but when you put it into context about how many kids there were before the age of 12, because that's what the study was, before the age of 12, a quarter of them had engaged with pornography in 2018. In 2018, the number of uh, kids under the age of 12 was 1,456,924. That's how many kids were in New Zealand under the age of 12, meaning that if a quarter of them have engaged with it, 364,231 kids in 2018 had engaged with pornography before the age of 12. Pretty sobering stat. The censor chief, or the person who took the, the survey, he said that many of them are watching it in order to understand what sex is. And I don't know about you, but I'm very confronted with that as a single statement. Because it shows us that in 2018, young people went to pornography, not teachers, not parents, and not pastors for information of sex. But my question is why? Why would these young guys go to an internet thing rather than talk to us about sex and sexuality? Why would they go to porn? 
We'll answer that in a second. In Australia, a similar study was done. They surveyed 1,000 young people under the age of 18. 100% of the group that they surveyed said they had viewed some sort of pornography at some point. That was the men. 82% agreed, and they were the women. 84% of that group said that they engaged with pornography regularly. A follow-up study showed that uh, pornography use was associated also with sex at a younger age and that women who viewed sex were more open to risky, dangerous sex, including anal sex, which increases the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. So what we see here is that pornography, it's a gateway, not just for information, but it increases physical sexual activity. It increases higher risks of sexually transmitted diseases, and it also increases the potential sexual damage to bodies. So we're already, um, we're like half a page in and we're already quite deep. Like let it, let it sit on you today because we've got we've to understand this is quite crazy. Because now, that was 2018. We're 2023 right now. So if you add to it this culture of sending nudes to each other, that, that's a culture, that's a, that's a thing right now. Young people are sending naked pictures to each other. Now we have a very broken and damaged generation that are trying to use the very thing that damaged them to try and heal them, causing further damage. So it's a vicious cycle. We get them stuck and they keep going, they keep cycling, they keep, keep getting stuck. In 2012, a study showed that an increase in mental health issues, uh, there was an increase with mental health issues with those who used pornography regularly. What they saw was that it increased negative emotions such as guilt and shame, it increases a sense of loneliness and an increase of withdrawal from those around us. So we end up having a generation that goes deeper in their own emotions. But what they also did was they drew a clinical relationship between regular pornography consumption and psychological issues, meaning that the more porn, uh, the more clinical psychological issues arises in a person's life. So it really shouldn't surprise us that when we talk about Gen Z and when we talk about, which is everybody under the age of like 21, I think, 2021 right now, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that in an over-sexualized world, we have an increase in mental health issues. We can see here that the sexualization of our world is a direct correlation to the mental health pandemic that we have right now. And the reason why it's over-sexualized is because sex works. Sex sells. Marketing companies use sex to sell products to us. We're in an over-sexualized world. TikTok, which is a social media app, is full of half-naked women, teenagers dancing to TikTok songs. Snapchat is another app that was designed to hook up with other people and send nudes. And what happens is, is it erases the photo after 10 seconds. So that was why they designed that app. Instagram photos get far more attention if the poster is half naked or fully naked. Advertising agencies leverage sex to sell everything from holidays to burgers. Ever notice that? Like Carl's Jr. ads, super sexualized. Um, sex scenes in TV shows and movies, you might notice that it's more normal than it's ever been before when you watch a TV show. PG movies are starting to show bikini-clad women, and you're like, what's going on here? Over-sexualized world. In fact, showing breasts within a TV show or a movie now is very, very normal. It's actually hard to find content online, TV shows and movies that don't have that. Add to that the complexity of a sexual revolution, particularly for women, where the messaging is freedom equals sex and sexuality. Then you combine it with a global pandemic where we locked everybody in their houses and all they did was consumed all of this content We've seen a radical increase in pornography use and sexuality. It's no shock to me that in 2023, when they did a survey out of America, we have the following stats. See if you can pick up the jump that we've seen. 73% of young people between the age of 13 and 17 have watched pornography. 
54% say they've watched it before the age of 13. 15% say they've watched it before the age of 10. 44% indicated that they did so intentionally. They went looking for it. And 45% said that it was helpful to teach them about sex. But this is not just a male issue. This is actually a female issue too. 73% of girls between the age of 18 and 35 say that they watched porn within the last six months. 14% of them said that they watch porn several times a week. So this is now no longer just an issue with men. This is now an overall issue. There's a problem with pornography in our generation. There is. And it's easier to access. It's more common than ever before. And it's damaging everybody's individual lives, which then flows onto the church. With this increase in pornography, we also see an increase in depression, anxiety, and suicide. Which is maybe why the Bible makes it pretty clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, to run from sexual sin. We can see why. Like to run, run, run away. <laughs> like just run, leave it behind. Run from sexual sin. Why? Because no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. 6, 18. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. Guys, we've got science now to back up that scripture. We see that there's a clear link between sex, pornography, and our own bodies being damaged because of it. But I, 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 I want to propose to us today, and the real reason that I want to talk about pornography today is because I think there's actually a greater porn problem at play here. Pornography is a porn problem, but I actually think there's a deeper issue when it comes to pornography. And it's got nothing to do with pornography itself. It's got nothing to do with the person who uses pornography. I want to propose to us today that the greatest issue or the greatest problem with porn is actually the way that churches approach the problem itself. I want to break this down today and help us understand how we can approach this a bit better. Because in history, when you look back at this issue, the church, both the institution of the church, but the people who are in the church have persecuted this sin issue far more than others. We don't treat gossip the same way we treat pornography use. We don't treat anger issues the same way we treat pornography use. And the challenge is, is that what we have done as a church is we've used the Bible to almost Bible bash people into getting clean. We tell them to pray more. We, we, or, or, or we say this, just have you tried not watching it? You know, like, like cool, bro. You know, like, actually, yes. And uh, it's actually quite hard. What we do is we tell men in particular that you need to be stronger, which sends the message that you're weak and that's why this is happening. So because we do that, what we actually end up doing is it's, it's akin to just weed whacking the issue. It's like taking a weed whacker out to it, just getting rid of it. And then three weeks later, the boys are still back. The girls now are still back acting out and stuck in the sin issue. Because you've got to understand, like if you've never struggled with this problem, you've got to understand, like we try hard to stop. Like it's really hard to stop. We, we pray hard. We read our Bible. But yet there's still this nagging sensation to return back to the issue. And eventually we fail because weed whacking doesn't work. It actually makes it worse. Because what we do when we tell people to just pray harder or read their Bible more or to just stop doing it, what we're doing is we're heaping on guilt and shame onto the issue. Porn use is like a leaf. And if I, if I had a thing, I'd draw you a nice picture of a leaf. But use your imagination today. Imagine a leaf. Porn, pornography usage is like 
a leaf. Beneath the surface, there's actually a lot more going on than the leaf itself. See, we need to understand that pornography use and, and, and the issue that's at play here, it's not actually just a spiritual problem. It's actually an emotional and a mental problem too. See, at the root of porn use, at the, at the root of the sexual addiction, is emotional wounds. It's trauma that people carry from throughout their life. I, I'd break it down. If you were here last year at Increase, you remember I did a, a message on the Sunday, uh, processing pain. And I talked about how we have to process pain that comes into our lives because what it does is it creates trauma in our hearts and it leads us to acting out of that trauma and that's where sin comes from. So for us, I'll do a refresher right now if you weren't there or if you can't remember, it was a year ago. So what happens is in our lives, we all go through things called wax and things called lax. A whack is a hit that we take in life Leaving an emotional bruise, emotional scarring. Something happens to us and it leaves an imprint on our lives, typically before the age of 16. What happens with a lack is that we lack something in our lives that have, that's left us an emotional deficit internally. And because of these whacks and lacks, we end up with root issues that then take root in our lives. And what stems from those is some sort of sin, and we call it acting out. Because of the emotional trauma that's in our hearts, we don't know how to process that pain. And what happens is, as an extension, is we end up acting out. Some people, they choose alcohol. And so we would call them an, al an alcohol addict, right? They're addicted to alcohol. And alcoholism is directly rooted to some sort of trauma that's happened in their life. So they use alcohol to numb the pain. We would, we would say of oh, someone who tries drugs that they'd be a drug addict. They use drugs to try and mitigate that pain. Some of us try food. Some of us are good at trying food. Um, but we would say that th they have a, an issue of gluttony and they can't stop eating. They can't stop eating takeaways. They eat KFC every night of the week and their wife keeps telling them to stop spending the money, but you just love KFC and you just... That felt... That was real. Um, and... and and you keep going because you're trying to medicate your pain. You're trying to deal without dealing with your pain. You're trying to deal with that pain. And so just like we look at all of those addictions, we have to look at pornography use and sexual addiction as an actual addiction. Because what people are doing is they're acting out of their pain. They're trying to medicate the emotional trauma that's happening beneath the surface. So it's not just that, oh, we're filthy and lustful. No, there's actually a deeper root issue that's at play here. And what we see is that people who are sexual addicts now rewire their brains to use sex to medicate their pain. How does that work? I'm going to use words that I've never used in a church. So, Lord, if this is wrong, please forgive me. When we orgasm, a few things happen. This is scientifically accurate. What happens is when we experience an orgasm, a dopamine hit which is the feel-good drug that courses through our body, is released in our bodies and it makes us feel good. In fact, an orgasm releases more dopamine in the body than an opioid like fentanyl or morphine does. So that dopamine release that we get when we have an orgasm, it's more addictive, like opioids are addictive, morphine, when misused, is addictive. What happens is our brain starts to learn what you did to get that dopamine hit. And what it does is it'll trigger responses to try and get it again. So what happens is we form something called a neuro pathway. And in our minds, it connects, I'm sore, I'm in pain. We got dopamine from over there and it was pretty easy. 
So let's go back there. And every time we go back, this is called the addiction cycle. And the more we go back, the more solidified this process is inside our own minds. And so what we do is we use the coping mechanism, whether it's pornography, masturbation, sexual fantasies, affairs, sex, just willy-nilly, no pun intended, uh, to try and make us feel better and to heal the root of the issue when all it does is damages us further and ingrains mentally a psychological neuropathway to keep getting that dopamine hit. Not only does it make it worse, what happens is to get the same level of dopamine, it escalates more and more and more. You see this with people who are addicted to pornography. They start out by watching something soft, and then it gets worse and worse and worse. And before you know it, they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars just to try and get the same hit of dopamine. It escalates. As the usage escalates, so does the pain, making it worse. What also happens, though, when we ejaculate or orgasm is that we ingrain the image that we have in our minds of what we were looking at when we orgasmed. And this is why marriage and sex, like God designed it so intentionally. Like this is why this is awesome. Because what happens is in marriage is that we build the neuro pathway to one another. So our brains are like, oh, we're getting a dopamine hit from this. Awesome. And so it starts to literally, the Bible says that it glues us together. It literally does. The neuro pathways that get linked together is it's a way that our brains go, oh, we're actually together in a deeper way. But it also ingrains one another, the mental imagery in our minds. So it's a beautiful thing. And that's why Paul probably writes in Hebrews, he says, marriage should be honored by all. Listen, and the marriage bed kept pure. And the marriage bed kept pure. Why? Because God knows it's dangerous when we start mucking around with all this other stuff because it ingrains the wrong process and that root issue drags us to bad fruit. And what we've done in the church is we've gone, weed whacker, and then what happens is that guilt and shame gets added. We then start going further in because now we need more dopamine to make us feel better, especially if you struggle with a rejection issue. Now the church has rejected me. My past has rejected me. I'm a filthy sinner. And so this pathway gets more and more ingrained. Do you know that there's actually a, a real practical and a really, it lays it out really clearly in Scripture how this root issue takes fruit, uh, bears fruit? Um, let's read it together. I'll read it to you. Um, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11. We're going to look at David's life because we see this in real time in Scripture. David says, uh, this is what happens. Um, in 1 Samuel 16, 11. So this is right at the beginning of David's, David's whole sort of character arc, I suppose you could say. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied. Now keep that in mind, they're still the youngest. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down until he arrives. So right here at the beginning of David's character arc, what we see is that we have a tension where, if you haven't read this story before, quick summary, Israel needs a new king. Samuel's come with a horn of oil, trying to find the new king, rolls up on Jesse's house. Jesse, who's the dad, Samuel, where's your sons? Line them up, we're going to pick one. He lines them up, nope, 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 nope. Is this all the sons you have? And Jesse says, there's still the youngest. Now what we need to understand is that this phrase, there's still the youngest, actually translates to a root word in the original language of scripture called hakatan. Now this hakatan word means a worthless one. So 
in the English, we see they're still the youngest, but what Jesse's actually saying is, oh, we've got a worthless one. Should we get him? Because he's worthless. So while all the rest of the family were at the anointing service to be king, Jesse, his dad, now articulates, we've got a worthless one. Now, I'm assuming, because I've been part of a family, that dads would have said this a few times. This is not the first time David would have heard this, and he hasn't even heard this. Even in the way that you treat someone, you can tell that if someone thinks you're worthless, you can tell that by the way they treat you. So it's fair to assume that David here has actually had this a few times. And so here we know that David, he's receiving this whack from this whack of rejection, and he lacked in his life love and affirmation from his father. And so what happened was, is that we then see him move forward into his life. So this is now the emotional wound that's taken seed in his heart. As he goes further into the life, he rolls up on Goliath. What happens? His brothers reject him for being at the field. Triggers the whack. Triggers the lack. Because now he doesn't have a love relationship with his brothers either. They accuse him of just being there for the prize. Then Saul, the king, sorry, Tate. Then Saul, the king, pulls him into his office and goes, you're 12. You know, like, this isn't going to work. You're going to die. Here's my armor. You're not good enough as you are. David puts on the armor. And even though he says, no, no, I can go as I am because God's on my side. He still now is suffering with this rejection issue. It's been reinforced twice in one moment of time. It's crazy. As Saul goes on through his life, the people start to sing about how he's killed his tens of thousands. That's also dangerous because now his pride's getting inflated. That pride starts to get inflated. That pride starts to get inflated in his own life. And so now it's also rubbing the whack and the lack the wrong way. And we're seeing it now start to take fruit. Uh, The root stemming up through the ground. Saul, as he goes on, as David goes on his life, Saul then would throw javelins at him and send him on the run for years. The guy that he came to serve, literally, he would sit in Saul's presence, play the harp, and the presence of God would fill the room. It's a, it's a, like a, it's a, pastoral, it's a pastoral relationship here too now. It's a ministry sense relationship. So now there's ministry rejection on his life. There's a lot of stuff David's carrying. In fact, if you continue to read the story and look for different whacks and lacks that David has in his life, you're going to be astounded at the amount that he actually has to go through. What happens is, in 2 Samuel, what happens here in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 to 5, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 to 5, it says this, In the spring year, when the kings normally go to war, David sent out Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city in Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, must be nice, David got out of bed and he was walking on the roof of the palace. And as he looked over the city, he just happened to notice a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and he was told, she is Bathsheba. She's in the bath. So of course she's Bathsheba. Um, (laughs) The daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Verse 4 says, Then David sent messengers to go and get her. And while she came to the palace, he slept with her. He had just completed the purif- uh, she had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, David sent a message. Uh, oh, sorry, she sent a message to David saying, I'm pregnant. So what have we seen here in this story? We've seen that the kings are meant to be at war. But for whatever reason, David's at home. Now, we don't know why he's at home. We don't actually see why he's at home. It could be the elevation of his pride. I don't need to go out. I, I, I'm the man. 
the rejection issues. There could be some of these things starting. But what we do know is that his army's out at war and he's not. There, there is, I think, a, an emotional factor here at play. Because I reckon David's maybe wrestling here with this whole, like he's tired. He's been doing a whole bunch of stuff. And when people are tired, they're at their worst emotionally. Maybe it's triggered some sort of worthlessness in him. Oh, I'm not at war when the others are. I'm not making a difference. Even if he sent someone out, you can make a decision and still reap the, the, the benefits or the lack of benefits in your decision. So what we see, though, is that something's happened here. He's looking out over the city and he acts out sexually. So now we have the fruit of the root issue that was planted in David back when he was a young boy. So this has been happening all throughout his life. And I want to propose to you today that it's actually possible to still love God, serve him with everything and be stuck sexually. It's very, very possible. Why? Because the battle that we think it is, it's not between our legs, it's between our ears. The real battle that we're dealing with here, it's not just a pornography addiction or a sexual addiction, just stop it. There's a super deep work that needs to be done. David was stuck in sexual bondage, much like our generation are right now. Here's what I want to say. Simply praying more won't fix it. It'll help, but it won't fix it. Simply trying harder won't fix it. It'll help, but it won't fix it. Simply reading the Bible when you feel tempted, that won't, it won't fix it. It'll help. So if that's not what's going to fix it, what will? Let's make the last few minutes of our time together really, really practical. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in the NIV says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Interesting. We have to rework these neural pathways if we're going to find healing here. Then you'll be able to test, uh, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. He is good, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What we need to do, guys, is we need to help people renew their minds. We actually need to figure out what the deep issues are and help people heal from their pain and their trauma. So how are we going to do that? Well, there are three keys to freedom. Now, I've learned this over the last five years of going on a journey in a course. Um, it's been a very intense course. But the course is run by Dr. Doug Weiss. He's a pastor out of America, and he's done basically his whole ministry on men's sexual freedom. Uh, I did a course. I've done multiple of his courses over the last five years, and I've got more content than I can teach you today. So what I want to do, yes? What's the doctor's name? Dr. Doug Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. And uh, he's an amazing content. I'm going to give you kind of an overview to get us started so that we can start working with our young people and even, to be honest, our friends and our family, okay? Because it's not just a young people issue, it's an everybody issue. So here are the three keys to freedom that Dr. Doug lays out for us. Number one, we need to break denial structures. That's the first thing we need to do, break denial structures. I'm going to break these down a little bit more in a moment. Number two, we need to understand the bondage cycle. And then number three, we need to access the deep wound that's at play. So we need to break denial structures, we need to understand the bondage cycle, and we need to access the deep wound. So let's talk about breaking the denial. Because the challenges with this issue is that many people are still living in denial because of the shame and guilt that parents, pastors, and other people have attached to the sin issue. What we have to do, guys, is we actually have to normalize this conversation. We have to normalize this. I'm not saying we have to endorse it, and I'm not saying we should shout it from the rooftops and get everybody who's struggling with it to come up on stage on Sunday and say, yes, I struggle with pornography. No, no, that's not what we need to do. But we need to, we need to normalize the one-on-one conversation. 
We need to normalize. We had a guy in our church. His name's Tony Clark. And he's who helped me find freedom because he rolled up to me one Sunday. I'm a pastor at our church. He, he's, he's been with, uh, with the church since the beginning. And he rolled up. He's like, when was the last time you looked at porn? <laughs> now, if you know Tony, that's classic Tony. But what it did was it really convicted me. Because I'd never been asked outright in the church foyer after a 10 a.m. service, when was the last time you looked at porn? But I, I actually lied to him. And then later in the week, the Holy Spirit was like, I set that conversation up. You need to have lunch with him. And I had lunch with him that week, and we had um, a pad thai. And I, and I remember because it's trauma. No, no, um, <laughs> but, but, um, but we sat together, and, and I was like, hey, you asked me that question. I was just confronted. I didn't know what to do. Actually, this has been my journey, and I'm stuck. I need help. And that was the beginning of my journey. But someone was brave enough to love me enough to see that I was struggling with something. Something wasn't right. He discerned it. The Holy Spirit must have spoken to him. I don't know. But he, he, he knew something was not, up, not right, and he asked me outright about it. Why is it important to normalize the conversation? Because when we live in denial, we live with secrets, and it's our secrets that keep us sick. Mm. That's right. Good. Ugly things fester in the dark. Yeah. So until we help people confront the darkness with the light of Christ, they're always going to stay stuck. So the first thing we need to do is get people to admit that there's an issue going on in their life. By the way, if you're struggling with this issue, the first thing you need to do is admit that you're struggling with this issue. There's no guilt. There's no shame. You've just got an emotional wound that we need to fix. Why is this such a huge issue? Because we keep it secret. secret, In the secret place, guilt and shame hold us hostage. So if we can talk about it as a family. Oh, no, this this is what I wanted to say. If we can't talk about it as a family, both at home and at church, where are we supposed to talk about it? It's just like if you can't pray for someone in the church for you, you're definitely not going to pray for someone at your work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in the same way that if we can't talk about this at church and at home around the dinner table or out for a father-son or mother-daughter conversation, where are we supposed to talk about it? We have to understand that actually we're sexual beings. Like God created us this way. We are sexual beings. And the devil has actually exploited our immaturity and insecurities around this whole topic. So what I want to do, I just want to give you some quick tips for parents, pastors, and people. So for all of you, what you have to do is, number one, address this first in your own life. You've got to be honest about this with yourself. If you can't be honest with yourself, you have no authority to call it out on somebody else. I'm talking about this five years from being on this journey. When I knew from day one, I was like, yeah, I think God's going to use me to help people get free. But I had to get free myself. So this is awesome. Get help if you need it. Book a meeting with your pastor after this. Text them. Hey, I've got a problem. I need to sort it out. Um, uh, once you address it in your life, then you can address it in others. Now, the Bible's actually really clear, and this is a really interesting thing that really challenged me. You can never be healed unless you, get, uh, unless you confess to someone else about the issue. The Bible says in James 5, 16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We love that second part. <laughs> the prayer of the righteous avails much. You know, we charge into battle. Yeah, but what about the first bit, bro? <laughs> You've got to confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person avails much. Yeah. So we've got to confess. We've got to get open. So if we're going to do that, we have to initiate non-confrontational conversations. And the best way to do this is ask questions just like Tony did. When was the last time you looked at porn? <laughs> to be honest, that's a confrontational question, Tony, and I'm going to lie to your face. But, but... A non-confrontational question is, hey, what do you think about pornography? What do you think about it? How do you feel about it? Like I did at the start of this. How do you, how do you feel? What, how many people do you think use pornography? 
And what it does is it gets people to own the conversation. People always own what they get to create. So if they get to be a part of forming the conversation, they're going to take ownership over that conversation a lot more than if you're like, pornography's bad, stop touching yourself, everybody, peace and love. You know, like, you know, that's not an effective way of doing it. It's very confrontational. Trust me, they're talking about it at school right now. Your primary school, they're talking about it. Even Christian schools, they're talking about it. Because we saw the stats under 10 years old. So they're talking about it. So it's way better if this information can come from a safe space. It's better to be proactive than reactive. And the church has been way too reactive on such a huge issue. Um, The second thing I want to talk about is understanding the bondage cycle. We've got uh, a few more minutes left, maybe five to six minutes. So let's wrap this up in the last few minutes. So we have to understand the bondage cycle. And what this is called is the noose of bondage. What happens is, is... it goes, the devil gets it around our neck and we start to get choked by this bondage and we start to die on the inside spiritually. It's a long game from the devil. But what happens is there are four, there are four stages to the um, uh, noose of bondage. Number one is the root bondage. And that's what I spent a long time talking about because I think that's actually where we need to start. We need to understand that there is a root bondage here. It's the past trauma that people have gone through. The second part of this noose is the shame perspective. This is where people get stuck saying something's wrong with me and I'm never going to be able to shake this. If only people knew what was going on in my head. If only people knew what was going on in my heart. And the shame keeps them stuck. The third step of this noose is a lifestyle of bondage. So because of the past trauma, we start to buy into shame. And then we start engaging in what's called a binge purge cycle. So what happens is people binge on pornography. They go hard, deep, dark for a long time. And then they realize that they're wrong and they're like, I'm never going to do this again. God, I promise I will never do this again. And they purge it from their life. They get free for like three weeks and then they uh, binge again on the pornography. And that's the cycle of bondage. So remember this acting out, it's a trigger from emotion. So what we have to do is we have to help people understand that. And it's in the discipleship of one another. It's in the conversations that we make room for the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit-led conversations helps people heal. And what happens is as they go along the journey, it took me three years just to get like my head out of the gutter, like just to get out of the shame feeling for me. So I was still yielding to the Holy Spirit. I was still like, I love you, God, but I'm struggling with this emotional thing because I never got to the root fast enough. So it's in the process of uh, the, one of my last statements today, but I'll say it now. Because we've been wounded by people, we need to be healed through the process of working with people. It's people that hurt us, and so we need to work with people. And the Holy Spirit, in amongst all of that, helps us heal and move forward. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the Holy Spirit's a huge part, but we have, to, we have to help people get to the point where they're willing to receive that. So we have to lead people there to the point of the Holy Spirit coming in contact. It takes time. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. Um, so that lifestyle of bondage, they're stuck in that lifestyle. The fourth thing here is the cloak of denial. What happens is, and this is why it's hard for people to accept that there's something wrong, is because they're in denial. I, I justify my choices. Oh, well, you know, someone swore at me at work, so I need something to act out just to make myself feel better. Or I've worked really hard this week, so a little bit of porn won't hurt. It's the exact same thing that alcohol, al- alcoholics do. Oh, a little drink here won't hurt. A little this. But it, it's... it's, it's the, the challenge is, is this noose just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And we typically, what we try and do is we try and help people at step three. We try and get them to stop acting out. 
But actually, we need to get down to number one, which is that root, root bondage. The reality is, is we're never going to break free until we deal with a broken heart. The Bible says God is close to the brokenhearted. So we actually need to help people see that they're brokenhearted so that they can get close with God. The last thing here that we're going to talk about in the final few minutes is this. We need to help them access the deep wound. We need to help them access the deep wound. Professional help here is primo. It wasn't until I committed to counseling that I actually was able to confront the fact that I had an issue in my life, which I'm about to talk about now, and actually have the tools to walk forward. So for me, what happened was I, I was 16 years old and my dad, who was an elder in the church, he was a preacher, he was a praise and worship leader. He had an affair with another couple in the church, um, a, a, one of the women in our church. And for me, it was a massive whack. This is the guy I've looked up to for all of my life. This is the example of a Christian role model and this is what's happened. And it was a really traumatic day, the day. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but basically what I did is in not being able to process my pain, I turned to sex, porn, masturbation as a way of controlling that pain and dealing with my rejection. And for years, I weed whacked. I just kept on just trying to get rid of the stuff and I ended up just keeping on relapsing. And the challenge was, was it wasn't until I actually committed, like I just said, to the discipleship journey of being in a Christian counselor's room where they were able to challenge me on some of the deep-rooted lies that I had believed and the neuro pathways that I created and revealed to me what was going on that I could actually do the work with the Holy Spirit. And what happened was it didn't just work with me. My mum and dad have also reconciled their marriage. This is when I was 16. I'm 30 years now, so they're still married today. They've done the deep work on their life. Dad has done a huge journey of repentance. They're still married, and their marriage has never been better. So this is, this is what happens. When we deal with the root issue, we can actually find freedom. Now, I know I've covered a lot today, so let me give you last four statements. Number one, we have to understand it's going to take three to five years to find total freedom from this addiction. And every time you relapse, you start the clock again. So it's going to be a wrestle. It's going to be a wrestle. And this is where we need the Holy Spirit to help us on the journey. We need to be open and we need to help people be open to the fact that the Holy Spirit is our empowerer. So without that Holy Spirit journey, without being baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's incredibly hard to fight it on a spiritual front. But like I said, it's not just a spiritual journey. It's a, it's a physical journey. We actually need to do the, the work to redo and renew our mind. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we have to be really intentional. On this journey... The first 90 days are going to be the most intense days ever. Like, it's going to feel like trying to, literally, because it's like uh, fentanyl or like the other thing, the other thing I said, morphine, and you're literally removing the way that your brain has dealt with the pain. So it's going to be really, really hard. Um, the third thing I want to say is make sure that if we're helping people or even with yourself, put content blockers on every device in your home. Every device. Why? Because often it's at the later nights, or when you're alone, that people start to act out emotionally. Even today, my phone locks at 9 p.m. and unlocks at 9 a.m. All I can do is Spotify for praise and worship music, notes, the Bible app, texts and phone calls. And so that blocks down. Why? Because I'm aware that after 9 p.m., particularly on ministry trips, mate, my brain's going a million miles an hour. I'm depleted emotionally. And so by having that block on, it means that I, I just have no avenue here. So it, it, it helps me. Annalise is the only person that has my code. I don't know what my code is, so I can't download apps. I've deleted other apps that I used to go to that empowered my acting out. And so now Annalise, she has my apps, and I like if I have to update my apps, 
Can you put the code in? And, I, and, and it's, it's awkward, and it's awkward for me, but what it's doing is it's sustaining my purity journey because I'm doing practical things as well. I want to encourage you that nobody can do this alone. Daily accountability is going to be the thing. Even today, I have a text group with three of the guys that were in my group originally, and we text each other every single day. If one of us miss, misses the text in, they shout coffee. How good. So there's a practical accountability. I know that if I act out today... If I do something dumb, I'm not just going to be accountable to God, but I'm also accountable to my boys. And I'm going to have to do that journey of like, man, I messed up. And I have to be ruthlessly vulnerable. At the start, though, I was part of an every Monday life group where every Monday, every Monday for three years, we would meet and we'd talk about everything. Ruthless questions. Because we built this relationship with each other that was like, okay, iron sharpens iron here. You tell me, what have you done? And, and what it did was, in the first 90 days, it created such great strength and stability around me, and it empowered me to move forward. It's a journey, and there's a deeper root work that needs to be done here. Yes, pornography is sin. I'm not trying to minimize sin. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to highlight to us that the real problem with porn is not the porn itself. It's the deep root problem that's driving us forward emotionally. So if we can decide as a church, and if we can decide as the church, to partner with people and say, you know what? I know something's going on. Let's do the journey together and commit to the process. We can help people find freedom. Because where this goes is it goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we don't prevent this now, we're going to look at a very perverse, sexually, a sexual perverse world in the next maybe 20 years. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in Sodom and Gomorrah because it doesn't end up well for them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word today and to talk about this issue. Father, I thank you for your grace and your love. Lord, Lord over anybody today who is struggling with this issue and feels any sense of guilt, any sense of shame, right now I take authority over it and declare it to go right now. I thank you, God, that you are love and that you love us. Father, I pray for strength over this body of Christ. Lord, that we would walk out of this room and be empowered to make a difference with our lives and help those who are stuck in this bondage as well. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this conference. We thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.